good to be with you today. We're going to go back, if we would, to Jonah. And uh, it's funny, I'm going I'm to backtrack a little bit. This is one of the fun things as you study God's Word. You know, as you read the Word of God, and, and you feel like, have you ever read a passage, and you, you've probably read it a dozen times in your life, and it's like you've never read it before again, when the Holy Spirit just pops out and shows you a different angle or a different truth about the Lord Jesus. And that's what happened to me in the last few weeks as I was reading back through Jonah and studying and preparing in the series. And so I think we need to backtrack back to chapter 1, if you will, because I want to look at a different angle with the Lord and his dealings, particularly not so much with Jonah, but with the sailors. Um, so let's go back to Jonah 1, if you would, and we're going to, it's page 654 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. And we're going to look at Jonah 1, uh, and I'm going to read the first 16 verses of Jonah chapter 1. Before I do that, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to your word this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you that um, you delight to show us Jesus. You delight to to bring God's word to bear on our hearts and minds. And so what I pray, would you do that this morning? Come, Holy Spirit, and um, anoint my words. I pray that um, you would bring the promises of, of God, the gospel and of God's love for us to just bring it more and more alive to our hearts and minds today. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, here we go. Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up into pieces. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Okay, here's what I want to focus on. What I didn't necessarily hit the last couple of weeks. You know, there are major themes in the book of Jonah. And one theme I think we're going to see today, particularly here in chapter 1, is 
is God brings suffering to bear in the life of the believer, and he uses that to produce much fruit, not only in the life of that one individual like Jonah, but in the lives of others and in the multitude of the nations even. And so he says here in Jonah 1.4, notice this is something that is so easy for you to skip over, and this just totally grabbed me the last few weeks as I was reading this. Verse 4 of chapter 1, who sent the great wind on the sea? What does Jonah say? And remember, Jonah is a biography he writes about himself, right? He writes about his struggles, about his failures. And listen to what Jonah says about God. He says, the Lord sent, right? The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So we see that there's no escaping here, right, when Jonah proclaims that God was very intentional in bringing this storm to bear in Jonah's life, but not just in Jonah's life, right, but in the life of these sailors as well. He sent a great wind, a great storm on the sea, that Jonah literally said, God hurled. If you read the original language, it's like God hurling, like those big uh, Scottish guys who hurl those big logs. Was that the capon toss, whatever? It's like God is hurling a great wind upon the sea as if he had thrown it out of heaven with his own hand. And so you can hardly have, right, a clearer picture or a more dramatic picture of God's direct intervention, right? Direct intervention in the life of Jonah. Because storms don't happen by chance, right? If you go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, he says that God sustains all things. What does he mean by that? Everything. God sustains all things in your life by his powerful word, Hebrews says. Mark 4, do you remember this when Jesus and his disciples are in the boat in the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up, right? What does Mark say? That Jesus, with a word calms the storms, and Mark says that even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. And so that means that storms and floods and landslides and volcanoes and bitter cold winters, like we have here, <laughs> happen by God's decree. And here's, here's what I want you, some of you might already be starting to feel a little bit of tension in your heart. Okay, I'm going to give you permission, it's okay to have tension in your heart and even in your mind when you think, okay, wait a minute. Stephen, you're telling me that God sends earthquakes. God sends catastrophes, right? God directs everything in your life. Some of you are starting to feel a little bit of tension. I do. I'm right here. I feel a little bit of tension, and I think some of us feel like we need to protect God from this kind of exposure. Oh, no, 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 no. We've got to protect God here. He, God, could, There's no way that God could possibly decree everything. Now, why is it? that there is this tension in us that we resist the truth that God causes storms, right? He, right here Jonah says this, he made the storm happen. He sends the winds and by his commands, he fulfills his purpose. So when storms come into your life, and I'm not talking necessarily about physical, natural events, but suffering or trials come into your life, when storms come into your life, You're faced with an important decision if you fall back on the truth of his word that God is sovereign and providential. And even sending storms in your life, you're kind of left with a couple of choices, okay? Here's the first choice. Either you will trust, by his grace, but you will trust this difficult doctrine that God is indeed in control of all things, okay? That's one option you have, one choice you have, right? The second choice would be this. You will slide into this view that God is a helpless observer of your plight. And he doesn't really care. 
that's called a deist view of God. In fact, our founding fathers, many of our founding fathers, had a deist view of God, that God was the great watchmaker or clockmaker in heaven who kind of wound up the universes and then took his hands off and just let and lets events in life and in this world and in history kind of happen on their own. And so that's more of a deistic view of God. So you really, either you're going to trust this difficult doctrine that God indeed is in control of everything in your life, or he doesn't really care and he's kind of this helpless God or a helpless observer of your plight, okay? I don't know about you, but I kind of err on the option one, right? That I would rather live with the problem of a sovereign God than with the problem of a God who is this helpless observer, right? We have to understand that we have a God who loves us so much that he will make us like Jesus and he will even bring storms into our life because he's committed to loving us and making us like Jesus. And we see that here so clearly in the book of Jonah, that he works all events of your life, even the suffering, for his purposes to make me like Christ and for his glory. I don't know if you guys have heard of Joni Erickson Tata or not. She, her offices, uh, Johnny and Friends, were actually shared offices of, of Reformed Seminary where I went in Charlotte. And so I got to meet many of the staff who ran her ministries and got to meet Johnny herself. Johnny is a writer, um, speaker. She was paralyzed in the 70s. She was a teenager swimming with her friends. She dove off the side of the pool, hit her head on the bottom, and par- was paralyzed essentially from the neck down and has been in a wheelchair now for, gosh, 40-plus years. She wrote this about God's decree and suffering in the life of the believer and yet God's glory in the life of a believer in the midst of suffering. Listen to what she says about her perspective on this. If anybody has a right to talk about this, it would be Johnny, right? She's paralyzed from the neck down, can't do anything, has had 40 years of folks caring for her. But listen to what she says. She says, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him, she says. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues that you have been avoiding. Wow. When God brings suffering into your life, I'll read that again, into your life as a believer, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues that you've been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue trying to live in two worlds? obeying Christ and then my own sinful desires? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, am I going to be like Christ, she says. He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours, she says. But today as I look back, I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love, she says. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in my walk with the Lord Jesus. So God sent these storms in the life of Jonah and in these sailors to save them. It's what we call the multi-threaded strands of God's providence. You know, God, as the infinite God who is sovereign over all of his creation, sovereign over all of his history, God works through his providence. And there's not just one line of providence in your life, but there are millions, billions of threads of providence that weave in your life and in the circles of your families and of your friends and of even of the world. And God somehow weaves these multi-thread of strands of providence to bless you and to give him glory. A.W. Pink theologian said this. He said, God is taking the tangled thread of our lives. You ever feel like your life is a tangled thread at times? God is taking the tangled thread of our lives 
and making them work together for his good. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119. He says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And get this, get what he says. I know your rules are righteous, Lord, and, then, and that in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me, he says. In your faithfulness, you, God, have afflicted me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, okay, God, in your faithfulness, I know you have afflicted me. I know you're doing something. I can't figure out what it is, but I know in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. And then listen to the promise he ends with. But let your steadfast love comfort me. I know in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. But let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. Promise to your servants. Well, the sailors are in fear, right? The storms are increasing. They're terrified and they begin to call out to their own God, Jonah says. Jonah 1.5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. The ship's crew had been through storms before. These guys were seasoned sailors, right? If you're a sailor, you're a fisherman. Storms were a natural part of the job, right? And so they knew what they were doing, but soon it became obvious that they were in trouble and the storm was so violent that the ship was literally about to break apart. I don't know if you've ever been on the water before in a boat or a ship when a storm has come. That's a terrifying thing. I used to own a little 16-foot fiberglass bathtub of a boat when we lived in North Carolina, and I would love to go out fishing. And one day I was out by myself, eight miles off the, uh, the town of Oriental, North Carolina, in the Sound. Uh, you know, eight miles wouldn't, doesn't seem like it would be very far, but that's a long way in a little boat, Right? Beautiful day, I'm out there fishing, catching fish, just having the time of my life. I've got my cell phone with me, of course. It, it doesn't work eight miles off the town of Oriental, North Carolina. And I see a storm coming, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, it's, it's a long way away. I'm, you know, I think I know what I'm doing on the water. I don't. The storm seems to be a long way away. I'm enjoying my time fishing, and I'm catching fish and totally lose track because the storm's behind me. And I turn around, and it's like, ah, oh, it's right there. All of a sudden, I feel the little hints of raindrops and the wind starts to blow and I think man I got to get back in you know and this little fiberglass boat doesn't go that fast and so I'm like I put off I hurriedly throw my gear in the boat and I, and I floor my little motor and it's like winding you know going as fast as I can you know and all of a sudden the storm just swoops in and it takes me two and a half hours to get back in and it goes from no waves to six foot chopped, chopped waves in a little teeny bathtub of a boat with lightning crashing all around, a little bit of hail. I mean, I, always, I, don't, I don't have a cover or anything like that. My, my rear end is hitting the seat so hard that I break it, and I fall in the cooler. My windshield shatters. The electronics quit. My phone doesn't work, and I'm like, Lord, this is it. I'm coming to see you, Jesus, right? And by God's grace, I made it home. But it was terrifying. I was utterly powerless. And I think that's what these sailors were feeling, that it was, they were utterly powerless, and I felt this impulse within inside me, and I think it's this impulse that lies deeply within every one of your hearts, all of our hearts, that we cry out for help, right? But who were these sailors crying to? These men, these sailors, didn't know the God of the Bible that Jonah knew, right? They had been raised in different cultures, and so Jonah even says that they cry out, each of them, to their own God. So it wasn't one, even one particular God that they were crying out to, right? They were calling out to different gods, right? So every one of these men, they were crying out to their own gods and when this tragedy strikes, and that's a sad picture, isn't it? Because none of their little G, small caps G, gods, had the power to calm the storm, right, or save them. And I think this is a reflection of what I call the silent church in a broken world. The silent church in a broken world. 
Look at what Jonah says in 1.6. He says, how can you sleep? Or the, the captain says, how can you sleep, Jonah? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and will not perish. You want to know what the bigger tragedy is here? That there, it was a tragedy that these sailors were defaulting to crying out and asking for help to their, to their gods who weren't going to hear them or save them. But that wasn't the bigger tragedy here, that they, were sa- they couldn't be saved by their own gods. You know what the bigger tragedy here was? That the one man on the ship, Jonah, who knew the true and living God, was asleep below deck. That's the bigger tragedy here. So here's the principle. Get this, Wellspring. People who do not know God are desperately crying out to gods who cannot save them. While people like you, who know the sovereign Lord, are sound asleep. People like you who know the graces of the Lord Jesus are often sound asleep. And there are folks perishing, crying out to any idol that might save them, and they are finding zero hope or zero help. You know, Jonah was surrounded by unbelievers, wasn't he? Who really needed to know God, who really needed to be saved, but what was he doing? He was asleep. And we saw this a few weeks ago, right? Jonah had this privileged upbringing, right? He had seen God's power work among his, among his own people as he was a prophet to Israel, right? He had had such privileged background growing up. And yet, here he has nothing to offer these sailors. Why is that? Well, Jonah had this self-inflicted, wounded conscience as he was running and rebelling from the Lord. His ministry, in a sense, had been silenced by the secret sin that was residing with inside of his heart. Think about this. Here the captain's calling out to Jonah. Listen, Jonah, how can you be asleep? We're perishing, right? Get up and call on your God, Jonah. Pray, Jonah, pray. Now think about this. All of us have circles of folks around us, right? I would venture to say that there's not one of you in here that if you were to sit down and, and, and take an hour, God probably wouldn't take you that long, sit down and get a notepad and start writing out circles of people. So your biggest circle would be your spouse or your family and your children or your grandchildren or your mom and dad and your siblings, right? And your aunts and uncles. So you have your family circle. Then you probably have your uh, neighborhood or neighbor circle, right? Or co-worker circle. Or if you're in school, your friend's circle. And then you have other church circles. And then you have maybe social club. I mean, if you were to sit down, I bet you there would be hundred more, hundreds of people within your circles, right? And then, so you have tons of folks in these circles, and I would venture to say that many folks in these circles don't know the Lord Jesus or unbelievers. And if you don't pray for them, who's going to pray for them, right? See, only the church can intercede, the church of Jesus can intercede for the lost world. And if we're asleep, who else is going to do the work? Who else is going to do that work, right? You see, your unbelieving friends may not be looking for you to give direction in their lives just in the daily grind of life. But get this, when your friends or those folks in your circle who don't know the Lord are there in a storm, who is it that they're going to want to talk to? Likely to you. You know, it, it, think about it this way. That when somebody you know who doesn't know the Lord is struggling, do you know that they are expecting you to talk to them about the Lord? Oh, they go to church. They're churchy, right? They might say some things that aren't very nice about you. But they know that you worship the Lord. They know that you go to church, if not by your words, but maybe even by your lifestyle. And when they're struggling, they expect for you to talk to them. So don't be afraid. There's a total 
God's provided a way for you to begin to share your faith, share about the hope of the Lord Jesus. And if you're not going to pray, they're going to sense something's wrong if you don't pray, right? So you have full permission to speak into their lives. So does Jonah pray after the captain asks him to pray? Does he? He doesn't, does he? Now why? Why doesn't he pray? Why not? Because Jonah still was struggling head to head with God in conflict, right? Jonah couldn't pray. He wouldn't pray because his resistance with the Lord was still firm. And here's a principle I want us to see. It's really easy for us to assume that you can always call on God in a storm. But it isn't that simple. Why is that? Because secret sins breed secret resentments towards him. Our secret sins that we harbor often breed secret resentments against the Lord. And those remain in our soul, and that makes prayer almost impossible, doesn't it? And that's why God, in this next step, God does this gracious intervention to expose Jonah's secret sin, doesn't he? It's extraordinary the way God exposed Jonah's sin in heart here. You know, we don't always, never actually, do we ever get to dictate how God deals with us. And God always surprises us in the way he deals with us, right? He does that here with Jonah. He exposes Jonah's sin and heart by some tumbling dice, if you will. Look at verse 7. Come, the sailors say, come, let us cast lots who is to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they decided to cast lots. It's almost like rolling the dice, if you will, almost like gambling. It's a process kind of like tossing a coin. We're going to flip a coin or roll dice. So they did this believing that their gods would, would somehow expose the offender, right? And so... They do that, and guess who everybody turns and looks at? Everybody turns their eyes. The lots are exposed, and guess who it exposes? Jonah. His secret sins were out. So God uses some pagan ritual even to expose the secret sin of his rebellious servant, Jonah. It's a breathtaking, breathtaking example of the sovereignty of God here. Because, get this, when God exposed Jonah's secret sin, it was the beginning of hope for Jonah. When God exposes your sin, it's the beginning of hope for you. Don't run from that. Some of us, we fear and we shudder thinking, oh gosh, if people really knew what was going on inside of my heart or my thoughts or what I've done or what I've said, yikes. That was the beginning of life for Jonah when God exposed his secret sin. It was beginning of hope for him, but not just for him, but for the ship's crew as well. Hebrews says what? That the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. So when God exposed Jonah's sin... Get this, it was a sign of his love for his servant and prophet Jonah. When God exposed Jonah's sin, it was a sign of his love because God would not let his servant go. When Jonah's sin was exposed, the silence was broken. What does that mean? It means that the li- a life of confession and repentance. You know, Martin Luther, he posted the 95 Theses on the wall. You know what his number one was? It was that all of the Christian's life is a life of repentance, of turning from yourself, being curved in on yourself, and turning back to the glorious good news of the gospel that God loves me, that Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. So confession and repentance is not a bad thing. It's actually life-giving. Confession and repentance can be powerful. In fact, it can be a powerful way to witness to your friends. Case in point, I remember in seminary, I met with a guy named Mark. 
And Mark was discipling me. It was just, I was really feeling the need to be poured into when I was in seminary. And so I met this guy who was a little bit older than me. He was a fellow classmate, godly guy. And I asked Mark, hey, would you be willing to disciple me? Can we meet weekly over lunch and hold me accountable? We can read scripture together. We can pray together. And so Mark and I began to do that. And it was such a life-giving time for me. You know, seminary can be a very competitive atmosphere. I think when you get a bunch of guys together, it's just going to be competitive, period, right? You know, guys, we're competitive, right? You know, see that acorn? I bet you I can hit that tree better than you can. You pick it up and you throw it. I mean, guys, we make competitions over the dumbest stuff, right? And in seminary, it was a competitive atmosphere. Everybody wanted to be doing better than everybody else. Everybody wanted to have the A, right? And, and not only that, but here's what it, a, a very deep struggle of mine is, is trying to seek people's approval. And that competitive atmosphere of, of seminary just accentuated that, right? And so I'll never forget I was in class. I think it was my Greek exegesis class. And the ending project of, project of that class was to write a, you know, 50, 60, 100-page paper. That was our end grade in that class. And it was a huge task. And here I'm sitting next to the, my friend, a guy named Chris, who is just naturally bright, who just languages come so easily to him and they don't come easily to me. I've struggled throughout my life in school, writing papers, that kind of thing. And so here I am just struggling, trying to get this paper done. And Chris is, you know, just a breeze getting this thing done. And, uh, we turn the papers in. We get them back about a week later. And, and of course, you know, being the good competitive guy, I'm, I'm like, as he gets his paper, I'm trying to look over and see what his grade was. He got an A, you know. Like, oh. Of course, I get my paper. And what do I get? A C minus. <laughs> And I'm like, you know, God, he got an A, I got a C minus. Well, quickly, I quickly flip my paper over so that he can't see what I got. And I'm glancing to see how, see how he, even read his comments. Isn't that terrible? I'm trying to read the professor's comments on his paper. Golly. Well, inevitably, after class, we, we have a coffee break and we're sitting around talking. And Chris asked me how I did on the paper. And I know that his motive wasn't because he was competitive. He was not a competitive guy. He just cared for me and wanted to know if I was doing okay. And you know what I said? I didn't, I wasn't honest. Oh, yeah, I got a C minus. I lied. I got a B plus. That's what I told him. I got a B plus, Chris. Totally lied about my grade, you know. Why? Because I wanted him to think I was smarter, as smart as he was, right? I mean, I thought maybe if I, if I don't say an A, it's not as bad. So I'll say B plus, right? So I totally lie about it. Well, in God's providence, I was having lunch with my friend Mark that day. And so I come to lunch, and I'm just all dejected. And I'm like, golly, I'm such a liar. I'm so sinful. Mark's like, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm really ashamed, but I, I lied to Chris today. What? Chris doesn't care what you make. You know, he, well, he made an A, I made a C minus. Mark, you know, he was not tender with me. He's like, man, you're an idiot. <laughs> why, why would you do that? And it was just God's ordained providence because Mark and his wisdom had really begun to hammer away at my struggle with people's approval. In fact, Mark called me, can I use this phrase, an approval suck, <laughs> that I tried to suck the approval out of people and not live uh, who I was and my identity in Christ. And so he really challenged me. He said, you know what you need to do? And it's like, well, what do I do? He says, well, you need to go and confess that to Chris. I'm like, hey, are you kidding me? I am not going to go tell him I lied to him. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> you got to. I was like, oh, gosh. So I struggled. You know, for two weeks, I kept putting it off. It's almost like, you know, you dial the phone to ask a girl out, and then you hang up. You know, that's kind of the way it was. You know, I just, I would get to it, I'm like, oh, I can't ask him. Well, finally, we, we, we see each other in class, and after class, he, we ended up talking, and I said, man, I've got to, I've got to share something with you. I, I lied to you a couple of weeks ago about that paper. Um, I made a C-. minus. He's like, man, why, why did you lie? You, I, I love you. 
I care for you as a friend. Well, I just wanted to look as smart as you did. And no, nah, man, I, I care for you. But you know what was amazing is, is I even said, you know, and the deeper reason that I lied to you is because I really want people's approval. And I really struggle with that, Chris. And would you pray for me? In fact, Mark told me, you need to not only confess to him your lie, but confess to him the deeper struggle going on in your heart of being an approval suck and to ask for him to pray for you. And so I did. I was like, man, I need your prayer. Here's what I struggle with. And you know, it just opened the way for, for confession and repentance. And Chris began to share some things that he struggled with and it allowed us to go deeper in our friendship than we had ever been before. And here's that picture here of this confession and repentance can be a powerful way to witness to your friends. It can even be a powerful way to witness to unbelievers because they see that you're not dependent upon yourself or your own goodness, but you're dependent upon the goodness of Jesus and his mercy and grace. And so we see that Jonah, God brought this into Jonah's life. God exposed Jonah's sin. He was able to move on from this secret sin and even come back into dependency and intimacy with the Lord. And the Lord used his exposure, right, to draw men to himself. He, he uses that to draw the sailors even to himself. See, Jonah knew what had to happen. He knew if the ship's crew was going to be saved, he would have to be thrown into the sea. What does he say in verse 12 and 13? Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm, he says. And what did the sailors do? Rowing harder instead... The men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. You see, the ship's crew didn't want to give Jonah upright, and so they tried their best to row back to shore. Their desire to spare Jonah's life, it seems somewhat admirable, doesn't, doesn't it? But it was a direct contradiction to the word of God. How so? Get this. God had spoken through his prophet Jonah, right? And the life of the man who spoke the word to them must be given up so that they could be saved. Let me repeat that. The life of the man, Jonah, who spoke the word to them, his life must be given up if the crew was going to be saved. You see, the crew felt like they could get through this storm of God's judgment, right? By rowing harder, right? But you need to get this. All of Scripture, Jonah, all of it points to Jesus. And God had spoken through this prophet Jonah promising the deliverance of the, from the storm of judgment to the entire crew if he was sacrificed, if he was willing to lay down his life. And he was. And so these men, they thought, these sailors thought they could save themselves by their own effort. They're rowing like crazy, and the storm is getting worse. They believed they could survive this storm without the sacrifice, right? And so what does Jonah tell us that the sailors are doing? Instead, verse 13, instead the men did their best to row back to land. Four words. But they could not. But they could not. That moment was the turning point for the sailors. They realized there was nothing they could do to save themselves. Those are four beautiful words in Scripture. And maybe the Lord is bringing you to a place today where you realize, but I cannot. I cannot save myself. And the crew realized that they could not beat the storm, right? And so they turned in desperation to God and God said through Jonah, listen, if you throw me overboard, you will be saved and the storm will stop. And so they staked their lives on the sacrifice of Jonah. Do you know what this points to? I hope it's clear for you. It points so beautifully to Jesus and what he's done for us. Listen, friends, every single one of us here today, me included, all of us, are under the storm of God's judgment. All of us deserve 
God's wrath, and God's judgment. And God's storm of judgment will always be stronger than you in your efforts. You cannot save yourself. And I know that the default motive of our heart is to start rowing harder, right? We do that when suffering comes our way in life. We try to deal with it, right? We bear down, we grit our teeth, and we try to, you know, muddle our way through that, right? But you or I, we don't have the ability to survive this storm by our own effort. We can't, no matter how hard you try. And the storm of God's judgment will wreck you. It will destroy you unless you are saved by the sacrifice of someone else. And that's Jesus, friends. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus gave his life for you to deliver you from God's righteous anger, from God's righteous judgment against your sin. You see, Jesus was cast out from men. He was forsaken by the Father, just like Jonah was cast off the ship, forsaken by the crew. But yet Christ offered himself as a sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. So at the heart of the good news of the gospel is that it's about God's storm that he brings and yet his sacrifice. You see, Christ was thrown into the storm of God's judgment, right? So that through his sacrifice, you would be saved. God's storm ended here when Jonah was thrown overboard, right? Jonah was sacrificed and the ship's crew was saved. Now think about this. Think about this. All of this shines a light on how the death of Christ is a demonstration of God's love for us. You see, we crucified the Son of God. If you remember the book of Acts, when Peter was giving a sermon to the unbelievers gathered around him, and he said that it was you, it was us who crucified Christ. It was our sins that held him here. We sang that earlier this morning, our sins that held him to the cross, right? See, that's our guilt in the sacrifice. Yet, Christ willingly chose to lay down his life for us. And that's our salvation through his sacrifice. See, there's a huge difference between Jonah and Jesus. Yes, Jonah is kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus, but there is a tremendous difference between Jonah and Jesus. You need to listen. Get this. See, Jonah was thrown into the sea on account of his own sins, right? Jesus was nailed to the cross on account of your sins. Jonah thrown into the sea. Judgment was brought upon him because of his own sins. Jesus was nailed to the cross on account of your sins and my sins. You see, Jesus had no sins of his own, and therefore he was uniquely in the position to offer himself as the sacrifice for our sin. He bore our sin on the cross. He endured the punishment that we deserve, right? Christ was stretched out on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, but rejected by both of them, right? And so Jesus went into the eye of the storm and offered himself as a sacrifice, absorbing the judgment of God. He endured hell on the cross so that you would never have to know what hell is like, beloved. That's precious. You see, as long as you feel like, as long as you feel like there is something you can do to save yourself, you are going to find ways of avoiding giving yourself completely to the Lord Jesus. As long as there's something in you where you feel like that there is something you can do to provide self-rescue, you're always going to avoid fully giving yourself to the Lord Jesus. Maybe there's some of you here this morning. There's that secret sin or that, there's that secret something that you're holding on to. 
and there is this blockage. There is this muffled voice. You're not really hearing the voice of God. Reading God's word is very flat, or there is even just no desire to be in the Lord's word. Because there is something blocking. There's this blockage. There's this secret sin. There's something that you're holding on to to avoid giving yourself completely to the Lord Jesus. But as you see the wonder of Christ Jesus, as you see the wonder of Jesus offering himself for you, that he is calling you to be reconciled with God, you begin to feel that Jesus indeed is worthy of the full devotion of your life and the full laying of your life down for him. You see, what's so amazing is that the Lord gives us these things called a means of grace. That's what communion is. Communion is this visible sign that's saying, listen, you're a bunch of forgetful people, including me. We're all forgetful. And we forget the good news of the gospel that Jesus indeed laid down his life for you. And every single one of your secret sins, every single one of your public sins, every single one of the ways that you try to avoid him and rebel and run from him, He's giving us this visible sign that says, listen, I have given my body and my blood for you. I died on the cross so that you can be reconciled with the God of the universe who loves you. You deserve what I experienced on the cross tenfold. You deserve eternal judgment and wrath from God, and yet you don't get it if you have trusted in Christ. And Christ has done it all for you on the cross. And so the communion is this visible means of grace, this visible reminder that, listen, you are forgiven and loved if you would just turn to me and trust me. And so that's why we celebrate communion. That's why we do it monthly, probably should be doing it every day, reminding ourselves again and again that we're eating the gospel. We're eating Jesus, if you will, and eating and remembering that, gosh, it's his love, it's his sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible for me to know and be reconciled to the God of the universe. And that's what communion, the Lord's Supper, is all about. So I'd ask if the elders would now come forward as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion together. Before we do that, let me remind you that this is God's table. This is not Wellspring Presbyterian Church's table, sorry. This is not our denomination's table. This is God's table. And you are invited to partake with us. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, if you have leaned into Jesus and accepted what he's done for you on the cross, then you are invited to partake of the Lord's Supper today. If you're not yet sure where you stand with the Lord, you know, maybe there is something going on in your life, something going on in your heart, and and you have felt the weight and the burden of conviction this morning as the Holy Spirit has been pricking your heart, pricking your conscience. And you're not sure what to do about that, and you're not sure how to repent of that. That I'd I'd encourage you to not take the Lord's Supper this morning, but instead to use this time to confess that sin, repent of that sin. Maybe it's somebody that you need to go through and repent to because you've injured, you've hurt. Don't take the Lord's Supper and bring judgment upon yourself, but repent of that. Turn to the Lord. Come and talk to me. Talk to one of our elders and ask for prayer. If you're not yet sure where you stand with God, maybe you're not in a relationship with Him. Use this time as a time of prayer and self-examination as the elements pass by. Don't be embarrassed, but refrain and and use this time to seek the Lord and, and, and seek Him. And Lord, do I really know You? Remember, He was pierced for our transgressions. 
And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke that bread, signifying his body broken on the cross for you. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to take our sin upon yourself. Thank you that your body was indeed broken for us. And we ask that, Lord, you would consecrate this bread from a secular to a sacred use that we might always remember your sacrifice of love for us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.